Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, Merry Christmas. It's so good to be together. It's so good for the full, whole family to be back together. If you're visiting, welcome. Raise your hand if you're visiting us from out of town or from a different place, another parish. Welcome to Sacred Heart of Jesus. You are welcome here anytime. It's so good to have you. And if you're here tonight because it was mom's wish that the family would be together at Christmas and you're here just to make mom happy, God bless you. We'll be over in like a few hours. So just hold on. We're almost, we'll, it'll be over soon. So God bless you. So I, I did a little research this, uh, the other day. I was looking up some facts about uh, Christmas cards. Christmas cards. So approximately 2 billion Christmas cards get sent out annually. The U.S. Post Office handles 2 billion Christmas cards. That is an unbelievable number of Christmas cards. I love Christmas cards. I love designing them. I love sending them. And I usually love receiving them. Although i got to tell you, folks, this year, a very disturbing pattern uh, emerged as I was opening card after card. It seems as though, and I can't understand why, glitter has become really popular again. And I just, like, I just got to ask, who are these psychopaths that are sending out Christmas cards covered in glitter? Like, I, I, I open this Christmas card covered in glitter, and it just gets all over my pants, all over my shirt, and I think these people... I think they must hate me because like it's it's the worst it's just the worst little arts and crafts thing right like you get it all over you as soon as you think you got it all off of you like a month later someone's like hey there's a little thing on your face you're like ah glitter it's so frustrating it's so 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 frustrating okay I was thinking about glitter all week just praying about the Christmas praying about these readings praying about this mystery that we're celebrating just glitter just kept coming to mind because I kept thinking I kept hearing the Lord say we have covered the story in glitter we've covered the story in glitter not literally uh, metaphorically of course right we've covered the Christmas story we've covered this mystery in glitter we've turned it into something cute and saccharine and like sanitized and porcelain and, and just, we've, we've glitterized it. We've turned it into something cute, something cute. Like take our manger scenes, our manger scene, for example, right? Our manger, the manger scene, the crash was, it was an idea of St. Francis of Assisi. I don't know if you know that. It was St. Francis of Assisi who, he went on a pilgrimage to Bethlehem, had this powerful experience with the infant Jesus, and thought it would be so good if every Christian could make a pilgrimage to Bethlehem. But he knew that wasn't possible, so he got permission from the Holy Father to design a little nativity scene that people could bring into their own homes. So instead of going to Bethlehem, he thought, let's bring Bethlehem to the people, right? So... I mean, this is, this is one of the most central uh, traditions of, of Christianity. Raise your hand if you got one of these nativity scenes in your house. That's like just about all of us, right? That's just about all of us. Like when I, was, when I think of nativity sets, when I think of manger scenes, I think of the one that my, my dad's mom used to set up every year, my gam. She passed away back in 2006, but uh, my family, my parents, uh, they, they now have the nativity scene. But I think of it every year about her setting it up on the little bureau in the dining room. And uh, it was this antique thing, and it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. But here's the thing, right? Year after year, I would go there with my family at Christmas Eve. It was wonderful. And 
I mean, I'm a little boy, and I would bring my, like, Power Rangers and my army figures and all these things, and I, I, I wanted to play with the nativity set. I thought, like, a battle Bethlehem would be a really good thing, right? Like, Spider-Man swoops in, saves the baby Jesus from, like, Godzilla and the Magi. I just, you know, I don't know. I, I always wanted to play with it. I was never allowed to play with it, and I'm over it. Just ask my therapist, my spiritual director. I've worked through it. Um, here's the thing about these nativity scenes and these... In these this whole thing, right? If we hold this pristine, if we hold this sort of porcelain nativity set in mind when we think about Christmas, our understanding, if our understanding of the Christmas thing, the Christmas mystery, is more informed by Christmas cards and more informed by um, like a Thomas Kincaid painting or, you know, any of these things, if it's still covered in glitter, we're going to miss the entire point of Christmas. That's the thing. So what I want to do tonight in this Christmas Mass, I want to retell this story, this story that's so familiar, but I want to retell this story in a way that uh, removes the glitter, so to speak. So that's what we're doing here tonight. I want to remove the glitter, because only in that way will we actually be able to understand why we're singing Joy to the World tonight. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, just want to make sure you're awake. Okay. I want, to, I want to start with this, and this is a part of the story that I never really paid too much attention to until this year. The story that we just heard from Luke's Gospel it begins by invoking Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, who of course is one of the most powerful figures in the ancient world. Caesar Augustus, who calls the census, right? The first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why would he have done this? Why would he have called a census? Well, it was in order to better rule his people, in order to more effectively tax them, in order to more effectively draft them, to manipulate them. It was really a tyrannical move. He wanted to know who his people were, where they were, how he could control them more um, forcefully, how he could exert more power and control over them. And here's the thing. Despite his intentions, right, he intended this for evil. He intended this for his own evil. God used it. God used it to bring about his purposes, right? Because without the census, Joseph, who was of the house of David, the city of Bethlehem, him and his wife Mary, they would have never gone back to Bethlehem, which is where the ancient prophets said that the Messiah would be born. Here's the point. Here's the point. God's purposes were brought about in and through the evil intentions of those in power. Nobody, not even the tyrants, with the greatest power can thwart what God is doing. Amen? That's the thing I think we got to know tonight, especially this year. All right, so let's talk about this journey to Bethlehem that we're all so familiar with, right? I mean, how far is Bethlehem from Nazareth, right? Just a few miles? Just like a short jaunt down the road? No. Bethlehem was about 100 miles away from Nazareth. Anybody here ever walked 100 miles? Pregnant? Anybody? I haven't, right? I get exhausted driving 100 miles, let alone walking 100 miles. Bethlehem is about a 100-mile walk from Nazareth. It would have taken them about 8 to 10 days. And here's the thing. In our imagination, we picture Joseph leading Mary with the donkey, right? Her sitting side saddle on the donkey, big pregnant belly. Scripture makes no mention of a donkey, and honestly, Scripture scholars tell us there probably wasn't a donkey because they were poor. And we know they were poor because in Luke's gospel, they, the sacrifice they offer in the temple was two measly turtle doves at the presentation of the Lord. They were a poor couple. There's no way they could have afforded to travel with a beast of burden 100 miles. They walked. Mary, nine months pregnant, walked. It's a very different image. And it wasn't just a flat road. They had to cross over mountains and down through the Cana Valley. They had to make a crossing of the Jordan River. How they did that, I don't know. 
But they did. They had to. So they arrive in Bethlehem. And any other time of the year, this would have been no problem. There would have been lodging. It would have been fine. But because everyone was moving through the census, the town was swollen with pilgrims making their way back to their hometowns. So there Mary is, and Joseph's thinking, surely the Lord has prepared a place for us. Surely he's done this, right? It's his son, for crying out loud. Of course he would have prepared a place for us. And they go to the inn, and the innkeeper, of course, says, no, we don't have room here. We don't have room here. And he didn't just simply say that because they were packed to the gills. He looked at this man's wife and sees that she's nine months pregnant. She could have a baby any day now. If she had a baby in his establishment, her birth would have rendered his establishment ritually unclean, meaning nobody for the next nine days could have come there for lodging, and he would have lost a lot of business. He says, no, 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 get out of here. He says, what can you give us? And he says, there's a stable. There's a stable down there. And this is where we need some real correction because, again, I love our manger scenes. I love the nativity scene of my grandma. I love, I'm sure, the nativity scene at your house. But friends, the nativity didn't look like that. That's not what the stable looked like. It wasn't this cute little gazebo with like golden straw on the ground, right? This perfect little A-frame farm with a nice little light hanging down, right? Like, friends, it was a cave. It was a cave. Just pause for a second. Let your imagination begin to fill out this scene. What did that cave look like and feel like? Crawl into that cave with Mary and Joseph. It's dark. It's damp. It's rough to the touch. And if it's filled with livestock, what do you think it smells like? Guarantee it doesn't smell like like perfume and roses. It smells like the stink of animals. That's the stable. And then Mary begins to give birth. But because she's free from original sin, it wasn't in anguish. It wasn't screaming out in labor pains because that was the heritage of sin. It was something altogether different than words can't honestly describe. She's giving birth. But imagine her fear, though, at the same time, right? Because imagine Joseph's fear. Here's Mary giving birth to her firstborn son. She's hundreds of miles away from home, hundreds of miles away from her mother her female cousins and friends, the women of Nazareth who would have been there at the birth, right? There's Joseph. He's a good and righteous man, a holy man, a carpenter, good with his hands. But Joseph's no doula, okay? He has never been present for a birth before. This is all brand new for him. And he reaches out and catches the newborn baby. His hands, the hands of a carpenter, The hands of a man that were calloused and rough, there was probably dirt under the fingernails, and there was no hand sanitizer. None. That was the human flesh. Think about that. Those hands, rough, dirty, calloused, were the first point of contact, the flesh of the Son of God, to humanity. That's incredible. There was no onesies in the ancient world. There's no gymboree that they shopped at on the way. We think about the swaddling clothes. We think of like a blanket usually, right? A nice, cute little blanket. Wrap them up. Put them in the manger. Swaddling clothes, it just was another name for just ripped up shreds of cloth. Joseph probably took the, the cloth, the, the shirt he was wearing, probably ripped it into shreds, and they wrapped the, the baby in the shards from Joseph's clothes. And they laid him in the manger. 
Mangers are like crosses because we, we've seen them too often, we've heard of them too often, so they become so familiar and we don't ever see them for what they are anymore. The manger is a feeding trough. Picture Joseph having to push the heads of sheep and cattle away from this place where they were previously feasting. He pushes their heads out of the way and he lays his son there. <laughs> he probably had to keep beating their heads away from them. Like, don't eat, don't eat God right now. Like, stop. Quit licking his face. Right? That's what a manger is. It's a feeding trough, which is so powerful. Let us consider for a second. Who is this one who is laying there? He is the one who will 30 years later say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Right? That's John 6. Jesus says, I am the true bread come down from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And this is all happening in the town whose very name means house of bread, right? Bet Lechem. What a coincidence, huh? Right? No coincidences. Like That's what he's doing there. That's what the manger is. Like the one who is the word, the light, he is lying in this manger to be food for the hungry hearts of humanity. Okay, now here come the shepherds, right? We think we know how the story goes, right? Here comes the shepherds, the sheep, it's adorable. Here comes the magi and their gifts, right? We know how the story goes, except I think our image again of the shepherds and the magi is off base because we think of the shepherds, we think those are the good old country boys, right? They're just out there in the field taking care of the sheep. Those are the good old boys. Judean hillbillies or something, right? That's not who the shepherds were. In the ancient world, the shepherds were considered scoundrels, they were considered criminals. They were consi their testimony, according to, to, to Mosaic law, their testimony wasn't acceptable in court. There was a saying in ancient Judaism that said, what the tax collector is in the city, the shepherd is in the country. These were fearful, dreadful figures. And here they come. They were the ones to whom the birth of Christ is first announced. Why? Because they're the little ones, the wounded ones, the broken ones, the forgotten ones, the neglected ones. And then come the magi. If you, think the ma if you think the shepherds are bad, magi are far worse in the ancient world. Right? We, we have that song, we three kings. But the word, in he the word in Greek is magoi. It's where we get the word magician, right? We have Simon Magus in the, in the book of Acts trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. He's struck down dead. Apparently that's not a good thing to do. Someone thought it was funny. Where are the rest of you? You awake? <laughs> So the Magi come. Who are these people? They are, for lack of a better term, they're practitioners of the dark arts. They're sorcerer figures. They are very terrifying pagan people. And the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, this is not like a first century baby shower. These are the, the articles that they would use in their craft. They would use the gold, they would turn it into dust, and they would put it on their parchments. They would use the frankincense in their incantations. They would use the myrrh as ink. These are all the things that they would use in their craft. Here's the thing, like, again, the Magi are not just, these are lovely men coming. How nice. They saw a star. In the ancient world, these were dreadful figures, and they are also invited. They are invited in. The first Christmas, friends, it was not glittery perfection. It was rough, and it was grueling, and it was filled with dreadful figures, and it took place in a very, very stinky cave. And for me... And hopefully for you, that gives us an immense amount of hope tonight. Because my life isn't pristine. It isn't glittery. It's not perfect. Your life isn't pristine. It's not glittery. It's not perfect. It's rough. 
There's a lot of stink in there. There's a lot of brokenness in there. There's a lot of woundedness in there. And we spend most of our time covering it up. We spend most of our time wearing masks and trying to pretend that it's not there, sprucing up the cave. But the reality is, we're wounded, we're broken. My heart is much more, our hearts are much more cold caves than regal palaces. And like I said, I don't think I'm alone in this, but Jesus isn't waiting for you to get your stuff together before he says, all right, now I'll show up. That's not how this works. That's not Christianity. That's some other heresy. That's not the gospel. The gospel's this. It's the staggering news that the God who hung the stars looks at you and says, you are worth my blood. You are worth my life. You are worth my son. And I see you struggling. I see your pain. I see your woundedness. I see the junk that you're dealing with. I see your life. And I see you're longing for more. And I'm going to come to you in a way that you can't even come to me. I will come to you first. I will step in. I will press in. I will be there. I'm not waiting for you to get your act together. I'm not waiting for you to be perfect. I'm coming to you in your imperfection, in your brokenness, in your mess. He isn't scandalized about these things. He doesn't blush or get upset about the things we struggle with. He wants to come into that. He's saying, let me love you right there. Friends, Christmas isn't a theoretical reality. It's an it's incarnational. It happens in places. Right? The Word was made flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The angel was sent from God to a town called Galilee to a man, to, to a woman betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David whose name was Mary. Like, it's all specific and particular. Christmas wants to happen in you. Right? This nativity scene is beautiful. It's wonderful. The ones at your house, beautiful, wonderful. But that's not where the Christ wants to enter. The place where he wants to lay his head tonight is on the stink of your heart. If I can put it so bluntly, friends, the manger of your heart, your heart, yes, your heart, is the only thing that he's looking for. He says, that's perfect. I'm not looking for thrones. I'm looking for mangers. And mangers are in caves. I'm looking for your heart. That's what he's looking for. And he comes as a baby so that we would have the confidence to let him draw close. Who's afraid of a baby? No one. He doesn't come booming on the clouds with ferocity and fear. He comes like a gentle snowflake, an unassuming nothing. With a little imagination, friends, we can shift our perspective here and, and see that right here, right now in this Mass, it's like we are back there in that cave. You can see in the, the candle there, that's the star indicating his presence. He's here, is what that's saying. He is here. And he's here in a way that no one could have guessed that he would be here. He's here in fragility. He's here in vulnerability. He's here in something weak and little. That's what that's saying. And the angels have just sung out their gloria over all of us. And we are like the shepherds. And in a moment, the same Jesus who was held in the hands of the shepherds will be placed in your hands. And he's simply saying, just receive me. Let me in. This is Christmas. This is Christ's mass. This is the reckless love of our God. It's a love that empties itself into a nothingness so that you and I might receive it and become fullness, become everything. Let's open our hearts, friends, as we continue this mass 
to really enter in, to understand why we sing joy to the world this night. Amen.